0: A common phrase among dads, uh, not necessarily my dad, but a common phrase among dads when, when I was growing up was something like this, I don't care if you finish last, but you better finish. Now, the truth of the matter is they did care if you finished last, and had you finished last and tried to remind them of their words, that would not have gone over well either. But the point is they wanted you To finish, there are other variations to this saying, something like, when we start something, we finish it. We are not a family of quitters. You signed up for it, you're going to see it through. All of these sayings and others like them usually revolved around sports or some other activity, and once that activity was committed to, it was expected that you were going to finish it. You did not necessarily have to sign up the next year. If you decided you didn't like it, you didn't have to sign up the next year. But you signed up for this year, so you're going to finish it, and we'll deal with next year later. That didn't matter whether either you were the star of the team or the last man off the bench. If you started, you were going to finish. But it was a lesson that was meant to transcend sports and apply to other areas of life as well. Household projects, for example, were not meant to be started and never finished or started and finished months or years later. A statement that no doubt will be used by some of our wives this afternoon against the men in their family. I started a project this summer. I was going to pressure wash. So I pressure-wash the driveway, I pressure-wash the sidewalk, I pressure-wash the front and even sides of our house where there is a little bit of siding, and I never got to the back. It still is unfinished, and every time I'm in our backyard, I'm reminded of an unfinished project. It also applies to more serious areas of life, areas like relationships, jobs or careers, even life itself. We've all experienced the heartache of someone abruptly leaving a job and us having to be part of the consequences or someone leaving a family. Some have even experienced the tragedy of someone ending their life. Last week we began a series that I entitled Saved and Secure, and there's a question mark there, and I made the point that I put the question mark there not because I'm unsure or not because I don't know what the Bible says, but I put the question mark there because I'm confident that there are a lot of people who have questions about their salvation or about the security of their salvation or perhaps about both. So last week we looked at the word preservation. That is the idea that God keeps those who are His. Those who are genuine believers have the promise of God that God will preserve us. What God begins, God finishes. Therefore, whom God justifies, He has glorified. Next week, we are going to look at the word apostasy. That is, is it possible for a genuine believer to renounce his or her faith? Can we abandon the faith that we once possessed? That is what apostasy is about. And then the last week, we're going to look at the word assurance. Can I know for certain that I do have salvation, not only now, but forever? Is it possible for someone to know, or must we wait until that last day. And all of that leaves our word for today as the word perseverance, meaning those who are genuinely saved will keep on. They will endure to the end. Now, I recognize even as we begin that that seems to be a contradiction. If God preserves, as we talked about last week, then why do I have to persevere? I mean, is it one or the other? Which one is it? Does God preserve or do I persevere? And the answer is yes. Both of those are true. The Bible teaches both truths, and even if we have trouble wrapping our minds around those two things, we must hold firm to the fact that the Bible teaches both. God preserves, He keeps, but those He keeps keep on. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to do it again from Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be looking at different verses, but we're still in this same chapter. And I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we are going to go to another passage of Scripture later in our study. So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to drop down to verses 10 through 12 as we look at this word perseverance. Therefore, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now drop down to verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, We want to talk about this topic this morning by asking three questions. Number one, is perseverance necessary? That is, is this something that is necessary for the Christian life? In order to be a genuine believer, I must persevere, or is this just something that is nice? That is, you can take it or leave it. It's good if you want to go that far and if you're really that serious, but it's not all that necessary. Is this a part of the Christian life or is this an add-on, an extra that is good for some but not necessary for all? Now remember that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 has given us the problem. We looked at that last week. In chapter 5, he has said that the problem with his readers is that they are dull of hearing and as a result of the fact that they have not listened well, they are spiritually immature. Therefore, when he opens chapter 6, he gives us the solution. You are dull of hearing and spiritually immature. Therefore, let us move on or go on to maturity. The solution of the problem of spiritual immaturity was moving on to maturity. And the way to accomplish that was to go deeper into the things of God. Now, that does not mean that the basics of the gospel are not important. He does not say here that we ought to disregard or discard the fundamentals of the faith. It simply means that deeper instruction is necessary in order to move people to maturity. Now, perhaps you recall our mission statement. Our mission statement says that we at Beaver Dam exist for the purpose of making and maturing believers. We set that up some years ago, and if you've forgotten what that is, it's written on the walls in the foyer. It's written on the hallways, all the way down the hallways. Over and over again, it says to make and mature believers. Now, we understand that we cannot make a believer. We understand that it is only God who can save someone, it is only God who can change someone's heart, but we said it that way to emphasize that He uses us to do it. So our existence as a church is for the purpose of being used by God to make believers, but we did not stop there. We said to make and mature believers because the making of believers is not the end product, that is the beginning of the discipleship journey. It is the maturing of the believers that we are setting out to accomplish as well, and that is what we are talking about here, because we believe that true Christians endure to the end. That is, they do persevere. So the quick and easy answer to our first question, is perseverance necessary? And the answer is an absolute yes. Now, I am not going to go into detail about the three pairs of statements that he lists there as part of the foundations of faith. There are three couplets. They are repentance and faith, and you're probably familiar with those. There is the washing and the laying on of hands, and then there is the resurrection and judgment. And of course, the the middle pair is the one that we would have difficulties with. Why does he include the washing and laying on of hands as basic fundamentals? And you have to remember that the writer here is writing primarily to a Jewish Christian audience. Now, some have tried to take these couplets, these pairings, and equate them to the three stages of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification, but I'm not overly convinced that is true, though I think there is some evidence of that. But the point is that the path to maturity is not to continue laying the foundation, but to build upon it. We have a couple of houses in our neighborhood that are currently under construction, And what we like to do is once those houses are dried in, we like to be nosy and we like to walk through them. And so when none of the workers are there, we walk through the home and we try to figure out, well, this is the kitchen and this is the laundry room and all that kind of stuff. And so we sort of envision what the house looks like. And after it's dried in, we try to do that a couple of times during the the process of the stages of the house. Now, you know what dried in means. It means that they started with the foundation. After you grade the lot, the first thing you do is you lay the foundation, But then once you've laid the foundation, you put the walls upon that foundation and then the roof upon the walls. And so you take that foundation and you build upon it. No builder lays a foundation only to lay another foundation on top of it and then a third foundation on top of the first two. That's not the point of a foundation. No builder lays a foundation and then abandons the project. I I know there's exceptions if they run out of money, but the, the idea is that you lay the foundation for the purpose of building something else upon it. That is what a foundation is for. Therefore, when we come to this text, we realize that we have the foundation of the gospel. That that does not mean that's not important. Everything else is built upon it, but it does mean that we do not stop with the foundation. We are to go on to maturity. We are meant to build upon that foundation to persevere until we reach maturity. Now drop down to verses 10 through 12 which is obviously preceded by verse 9. And verse 9 is a bit of confidence in the people he's writing to. Now, again, Hebrews chapter 6 is primarily known as a warning passage. It is the strongest passage and most difficult to interpret concerning apostasy. We'll look at that next week. Those are the verses in between where we've skipped today. But when he comes down to verse 9, after the warning of apostasy, he says... But concerning you, I am confident of better things, things pertaining to salvation. Why is he confident of this? Well, because he has seen their works. They have already proven their faith through the fruit, and he is convinced that this will continue to be the case. But at the same time, even though he's looking backwards and he's saying, I can see fruit, and that's why I'm confident in your salvation. He goes on to say, but I want you and urge you to earnestly keep the hope until the end rather than being sluggish. So even though they are currently and in the past have been giving evidence of their salvation through fruit, he urges them on to continue to persevere. You see, the topic we talked about last week, the preservation of God, can be misconstrued and lead to laziness. I'm not saying it should, I'm just acknowledging that it can. That is, we can get the idea that because God keeps those who are his, all I've got to do is get in and then I can sit back and do nothing the rest of my life and after all, God has promised to keep me. Once saved, always saved, that's what we're all aware of which means all I've got to do is get saved, and I'll have the assurance of salvation for the rest of my life because God keeps those who are His, and the unintended result of that kind of doctrine can lead to people not serving the Savior. Rather, they are sitting in the stands and doing nothing. In our life group book a few weeks ago, we came across a word that, at least in my group, many people weren't familiar with. And I asked them, how many of you are familiar with this phrase? And most of them were not. It was the phrase, cheap grace. There is another phrase we use that says very much the same thing. It is easy believism. Both of these phrases, cheap grace and easy believism, speak to the same thing. And that is the trampling of the grace of God, which is so very common in our day. Pray a prayer, maybe join a church, not necessary, But as long as you pray that prayer, you will go to heaven when you die. doesn't matter what transpires from that moment forward, and that is the mentality of a lot of professing Christians. And with that comes the assurance, again, because God has promised, but this is not true salvation. Cheap grace or easy believism is a trampling upon the grace of God, the thinking being that since we are saved by grace, nothing else matters, so accept salvation by grace through faith and everything will work out just fine. But this kind of mentality ignores other parts of the Bible like the parts of the Bible we are looking at today. Parts of the Bible that consistently speak of perseverance being a mark of true salvation. Now, again, I must always emphasize that we are not saved by our perseverance. I am not saying that if you persevere, you will save yourself. I am saying that perseverance is a mark of genuine salvation. It is a fruit of faith. And those two things so go together that all those who are genuinely saved will persevere until the end. And that is what our author of Hebrews is saying as well. He is writing to this audience of His, urging them to earnestness and concluding their faith by going on, urging them to persevere as a mark of true salvation. And not just uh to look at this but to imitate it notice he says there don't just look at other people but imitate there have been people that have gone before us he says And I want you to look at their faith and how they have inherited the promises and be imitators of them. That is why later in Hebrews chapter 11, you're familiar with that chapter, he gives this biography of Old Testament men and women who have demonstrated their faith by their works and therefore they have wound up in God's hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And here he's saying, be imitators of those kinds of people so that you will persevere in your faith as well, regardless of the difficulties. Uh, Thus he gives them hope that they can do the same thing. That's why we like to read biographies in our own day. We like to look at the lives of other people to see how they overcame and what they did or what they believed in order to get through difficulties in their life with the hope that we can apply some of the same things they've applied and we can do the same thing. All the more so when we talk about Christian biographies, looking at men and women of the faith who have run the race before us, and not only what we can see in their lives, but how we can imitate them. In fact, I started a series a couple of Wednesday nights ago, looking at some of the great men of the faith, and we're going to add a a lady to it. We're going to add... What's her name now? I can't. Lottie Moon. I shouldn't bring stuff up that's not in my notes because then I go blank. But we're going to talk about some men of the faith and a lady, Lottie Moon. And I've already done two. We've talked about Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the great reformer. And this last Wednesday night, we talked about a man by the name of William Tyndall. How many of you have heard the name Martin Luther? But perhaps you've not heard of William Tyndall. William Tyndall is known as the father of the English Bible. He is known by that title because he is the first man to translate the Bible into English. He lived in England. He had a desire for the English people to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And so he spent his life translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. He completed the New Testament and he tried the Old Testament but never got it completed. He did a large portion of it but didn't finish it. Now the reason he didn't finish it is this. It was illegal to do that in his day. It was illegal to translate the Bible into English or any other language for that matter. It was illegal to possess an English Bible. Again, this is in England. It was illegal to possess. It was illegal to distribute. It was illegal to sell uh, an English Bible. And yet so was his resolve to make sure people had the Word of God in his own language that he risked his life. At the age of 30, he became an exile. He had to leave the land of England. And he became a heretic. He was, he was charged as a heretic, and he became a fugitive for the rest of his life. This was a capital crime. This was not just a misdemeanor. This was a felony in that day that was uh, with the consequences of death. And so he had to flee. For 12 years, he spent his life on the run translating the Bible. And as I said, finished the New Testament but did not finish the Old Testament. After 12 years as a fugitive, he was betrayed by someone who got close to him. He was arrested, he was tried, and he was crucified. This is just 500 years ago. He was crucified for the crime of translating the Bible into the English language. Now, as he's languishing in prison, as he is there in jail under very harsh conditions, it is cold, it is damp, he does not have adequate clothing, what does he ask for? He asked for four things. Number one, he says, I want a lamp so that he could continue to read and study after it got dark. Number two, he says, I want my Hebrew Bible. Number three, I want my Hebrew grammar. And number four, I want the Hebrew dictionary. Why? So he could continue to translate the word of God as he is awaiting his execution for the crime of doing the very thing he's still doing in prison. Now that is perseverance. Now you and I will probably never be called upon to do anything like that. But it does not matter whether we go to that extreme or not. We are called upon as genuine believers in Jesus Christ to persevere in our faith. This is a necessity for genuine salvation. It is not merely something that is nice. So question number one, is this necessary? Absolutely. Which brings up the second question. How long do I persevere? Having established that perseverance is necessary, the question might be, well, how long? Six months? A year? Will a decade be enough to prove that my salvation is genuine? Well, I hesitate to bring this up because, frankly, I'm tired of hearing it myself. But the big question in evangelicalism today is this. Is Kanye West's conversion genuine? That's what everybody wants to know. That's what everyone's talking about. Is it real or is this just another marketing scheme, another another thing out of Hollywood that will prove to fade into the distance? Now, if you don't know who Kanye West is, count your blessings. I'm just kidding. For those of you who love him, I'm just kidding. But the question is, in fact, the fact that this is a big question in evangelicalism tells me that there's larger problems in evangelicalism, problems that I'm not going to deal with this morning. But the question is, is Kanye West's conversion for real? And people have been asking me that. Some are very adamant. Yes, it is real. You can see the change. His mentor is the real deal. And this man has been dramatically converted by God. Other people say, it's Kanye West. He's not converted. It's just another scheme to make money. So what do I answer when people ask me? I say, I don't know. I don't know if his faith is genuine or not because it hasn't been long enough. This just happened about six months ago. So who knows? We've got to wait and see if he is going to persevere to prove whether or not his faith is genuine. And I don't say that just to dodge the question. I think that's a biblical answer. Now, at the same time, that does not mean that we have to wait until someone dies to say whether or not they were a genuine believer. And we need to be reminded that our task is not to speculate nor decide on everyone else's conversion anyway, but we do need to examine our own faith, and we ought to be discerning when it comes to the marks of genuine discipleship, which means we do need to know what the Bible says about the nature of genuine salvation, not only for our sake, but for the sake of others. And so to answer the second question, how long do I persevere, I quote for you Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22 where Jesus is speaking and he clearly and effectively and convincingly answers this question. The text says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus actually makes that exact same statement in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13. So twice in Matthew's gospel, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Both of these passages are set in the context of persecution. In fact, they're both set in the context of the promise of persecution. So how are you going to handle persecution when it comes? William Tyndall has already told us how he handled it. We are going to persevere until the end, thereby showing true faith. Now, it is true that difficulties often reveal who we really are. Some people say sometimes that difficulties help make us, they help shape us into the people that we are. And I do believe there is some truth in that. But there is also truth in understanding that difficult days not just make us or shape us, but they draw out of us what is already there. They show what is truly on the inside of us. And that is what Jesus is saying here. When persecution comes, those who endure in their faith show by that endurance that their faith is solid and true. In fact, in the second passage that I referenced The quote, those who endure to the end will be saved, is preceded by this statement, lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. Is that not an accurate description of what we see around us today? Lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. I am not talking about crime in our society in which our criminal justice system gets involved and meets out consequences, though that would still be accurate. I'm talking about the disregard for God and His laws, which is clearly a major issue. But my focus this morning is on the second half of that statement. Lawlessness will increase, and the second half says, and the love of many will grow cold. Apathy will set in, and passion will disappear. Again, this is not the apostasy that we'll talk about next week. This is not people who renounce their faith. This is not people that verbally and practically abandon their faith by saying, I no longer believe in Jesus. I'm talking about a practical apostasy here whereby there is no longer a desire or a hunger for the things of God. How else can we describe the huge gap, the huge gap between church members and those who gather for worship on a regular basis. And I'm not just talking about our numbers here at Beaverdam, though those do apply. I'm talking about the vast majority of churches across the evangelical world. How do we account for the huge gap? We will be lucky to have 25% of our church members in attendance on any given Sunday morning. 25%, and that's a good Sunday. Where are the other 75%? Now, I realize there are good reasons to miss. I'm not lumping everybody into that. I'm simply saying that if you look at the numbers and you come to realize that on any given Sunday, 75% of the members of a church, not just this, but other churches like us, are not in attendance. What does that say? I think it testifies to exactly what Jesus says. The love of many has grown cold. So much so that they no longer gather for worship. They no longer serve in the kingdom of God. They no longer give to the work of the kingdom of God. And so in answer to the question I posed, how long do we persevere? Jesus answers that question very clearly. We endure until the end, which means the end of our life or when Christ comes again, whichever comes first. Now we might also need to add that we endure until the end of our right mind. And I do not say that as a joke, I say that as reality. We do have family members, all of us are affected by the various diseases that affect the mind, dementia and Alzheimer's, and there are families that are going through this, and they begin to to wonder about the salvation of their loved one because their personality now changed, and the words coming out of their mouths changes, and they don't talk or think like they used to, and they wonder if this is the real person that is now coming out. And so they, they, they're wrestling not only with the mental disease that's in front of them, but they're wrestling with the spiritual implications of it. Friends, we cannot hold someone responsible for what's going on in their minds when they have a mental disease. So I would add that we endure until the end of our right mind, especially given the context that we find ourselves in so often, which leads to our last question. The last question is, what does perseverance look like? We've established the necessity of it. This is not just something that is nice for those who are serious about the faith. This is for every believer. And We say, okay, well, how long? And Jesus answered that very convincingly. We endure until the end. So what does it look like to endure? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Does endurance mean that I just can't renounce my faith, that I still have to say I believe, that I still believe that prayer I prayed, and therefore I'm still okay? Well, again, let's hear Jesus' words. Matthew 7 and verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, obviously, the context here is the possibility, indeed, the probability of false prophets coming into the church. This is a topic that we find throughout the Gospels and indeed throughout the epistles. There are many of the New Testament letters that in large measure are written because there are false prophets or at least the danger of them in the various churches. So how do we know one prophet from another? How can you tell a genuine Christian from one who is merely a false one? Well, Jesus gives us two answers here. The first is clearly found in verse 16. You will know them by their fruit. Now, this would include their outward good deeds, but it would certainly go beyond that to include their character and inward qualities. We could mention the fruit of the Spirit that Paul brings up in the book of Galatians. There is a wide variety of quality and type of fruit, but true faith yields some kind of fruit. That, that is the basic statement. We're going to differ in the quality, we're going to differ in the quantity, but true faith yields fruit. I am reminded of the parable Jesus told of the farmer and the four soils. He talks about a farmer who spreads seed, and that seed falls on four different kinds of soil. The first is a very hard soil that doesn't produce anything. This is clearly talking about the people whose hearts are hardened. They don't want to hear the gospel. They're not going to respond to the gospel. There is no response with them whatsoever. They are hard to the things of God. They are unsaved. But then the next two soils initially yield some kind of response. That is, there is an initial favorable response. There is life, or so it seems, but it doesn't last very long, either because it is choked out by thorns or because the sun scorches it and because its roots are not deep, it withers away. Both of those kinds of soil are what we're talking about this morning, those who claim to believe and yet they wither away. They do not persevere. You say, but they had signs of life. They, they went forward at a church. I saw them crying. I was there. Yeah, and that's why Jesus told that parable, that there are going to be some who who give evidence initially, but they fade away. It is only the fourth soil in that parable that yields fruit. It is only the fourth soil that produces. And Jesus goes on to say that the quantity is different. Some 30, some 60, some 100, or whatever the numbers are. But they all produce fruit. That is the the common denominator in that brand of soil. That's speaking of genuine salvation. So the parable by Jesus illustrates the very thing we are talking about. Perseverance means yielding spiritual fruit to some degree for the rest of our lives. It's an agricultural illustration. A good fruit tree bears fruit. If it does not bear fruit, it is not a good fruit tree, and therefore it is cast down and thrown out. I've told you before, but our first church, the first church I pastored, was in York, South Carolina. No, it wasn't even in York, South Carolina. It was five miles outside of York, South Carolina. And and York, South Carolina is a very small town. Most of you probably haven't heard of it. But we were five miles out of town in the midst of a bunch of peach orchards. So we had several peach farmers in our church, and so I learned a little bit about peach farming. And what little I learned is this. If there is a peach tree that is not bearing peaches, do you know what they do to it? They get rid of it. It is good for nothing. The purpose of a peach tree is to produce peaches, and if it doesn't produce peaches, it is merely draining the resources from the other trees around it. And therefore, they cut it down and get rid of it. And that's exactly what we're seeing in both of these texts we are looking at this morning. That genuine believers produce spiritual fruit as an evidence of their faith. Then the second thing we see in Matthew chapter 7 is that true believers obey, that is, they follow. Now remember, this is what we saw in Mark's gospel. The call to discipleship was a call to follow. Follow me, Jesus consistently said. And here the phrase is, the one who does the will of my Father. Now, no one here is arguing for sinless perfection. I'm not talking about the fact that you have to be sinless. If it's sinless perfection, then there is no need for the cross. Nobody is perfect, but we ought to be trying. We ought to be consistently trying to put away sin and at the same time pursue holiness because not only is that what God has called us to do, but that is who he is. And then the remainder of this section is very haunting. And it should be haunting for those who are not giving any evidence of a changed life. Jesus himself says that just because you call me Lord, just because you know the right title and say it, does not mean that you are really one of mine. I mean, even those who know the title and might do some things, Didn't we do many wonderful works in your name? And what does Jesus respond? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is why we must make sure of our salvation. Again, something we'll talk about in our last week when we study the word assurance. So we've clearly seen that enduring to the end must be more than I still believe. I prayed the prayer. Jesus says it is bearing fruit and being obedient, that is, following him. James reminds us in his epistle that even the demons believe, that is, they know who Jesus is, and yet they tremble. They are not saved. So now we can put these two together. God preserves, meaning he keeps those who are his. And one of the means by which we know that is true in our life is through perseverance. God keeps us That strengthens and encourages us so that we can keep on. Again, I know that sounds contradictory, but these truths are both true, and therefore they both need a place in our minds. We rest in the promises of God that God keeps His children, while at the same time we remain diligent in the exercise of our faith regardless of the obstacles. Now, I'm confident many of you know the basic story of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. You know it because Dr. Earl spent a long time in Nehemiah many years ago, and some of you remember that. And you know it because I preached through the book of Nehemiah on Sunday nights some years ago. The basic story of Nehemiah is that the Jews had been deported to Babylon for 70 years, and now they are beginning to come back. Now, Nehemiah deals with Nehemiah coming back to build the wall. But prior to Nehemiah coming back, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, He goes back first, and his task is to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel is to lead the people to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And so he starts the project. For two years, they build the foundation of the temple, and then they quit. And nothing else is done for 17 years. They build the foundation. It's still there. For 17 years, nothing else is built Upon it. Now, can you imagine what those people thought when they walked past that foundation? That first year of the 17, I think they probably hung their heads in shame. Perhaps they made comments like we still do in church. You know, somebody ought to do something about that. Somebody other than me, that is. Or you know what? I think I'm going to send Zerubbabel an email. Tell him how disappointed I am that this project has been halted and isn't going on. That was probably the first year. But after the first year, they probably forgot all about that foundation. They became apathetic, walking past it, didn't even see it. Just like you do on your way to work tomorrow morning. If you take the same route to work tomorrow morning that you always take and nothing has changed along the way, you don't see anything. It's just all the same, and you've seen it every day. So they got complacent, they got apathetic. And they didn't even notice the foundation any longer. Foundations were never meant to be on their own. They are always meant to be built upon. So spiritually speaking, I wonder if we've grown accustomed to the mere foundation. Maybe we've even grown apathetic toward it. And we need to be reminded this morning that growth toward maturity is the standard embracing the basics is where it begins, but we do not become stagnant after that and think, well, I've got the gospel. I'm going to heaven when I die. All that's great. No, the writer of Hebrews encourages us here to go on toward maturity, to persevere and endure to the end. And in a church like ours, we have people all along the spiritual continuum. We have people who have been faithfully following Christ for many years. And just to be quite honest, You probably don't have many years left. And I don't say that to be mean, I'm just being honest. I mean, you're later in your life and you've been faithfully following and you have a year or two more to go, maybe. We don't know, of course. Then there are others who are young in their faith and you have the idea that you have many, many years. I remind both the old and young alike, we do not know what tomorrow brings. We don't know the future. So my message is the same to all of us this morning. Every professing believer, whether you've been a believer for 60 years and you're in the, the twilight of your life, or whether you've been a believer for a few years and you think you've got 80 more years to go, the message is the same. Persevere. Endure until the end. Whenever that end is, we don't know what it is, but our task is to rest in the preservation of God, that God keeps his own, and then to be diligent. Be diligent in the perseverance of our faith, because those whom God saves endure to the end. Let's pray.